As a free, not-for-profit service, Cradio requires the support of people like you to help keep us going in our mission. To donate, visit cradio.org.au slash donate. Cradio. Crisis in the Family A talk by Father Mitch Pakwa Matrimony back in the 1950s was in as good a state as it's ever been. There was very little divorce, and because there was no major war, there were some skirmishes, serious skirmishes to be sure, during the Cold War, such as Korea, and then later on Vietnam, and a few others here and there. But there was no major war in the 50s. There was no famine, and there was no plague. So that most of us who grew up, I was born in the late 40s, and most of us growing up in the 50s could expect to reach our adulthood with both of our parents not only alive, but living together. That was the expectation. And it was, in many ways, a quite ideal time to grow up. Not only could we expect that our families would be intact, but there were plenty of kids around. There were lots of other children to play with. Uh, We roamed around in herds. Our fathers came back from the World War, and there were lots and lots of babies to be made. You know, in one sense, making up for the losses. But also, family was strong, and belief in having children was a, a high value. And this lasted through the 50s and into the mid 60s. But by 1965, a change began to occur. 65 is a watershed year. That begins the process of two things going on with regard to family. One, single motherhood was beginning to increase. I remember the first time I ever met a single mother. I was about 14 and I it just did not compute. Well, you've got to have a husband if you've got a baby. You know, I, mean, I remember saying that to this young lady. Uh, because it just did not compute. Nobody we knew was divorced. There were no single mothers anywhere that I knew except till I was 14. And the second thing that was going on was the increase of divorce because the states began to enact no-fault divorce laws. So that prior to 65, you had to approve that one spouse was physically violent or was committing adultery or some other crime. And in those days, adultery was a crime that you could be punished under the law for committing adultery and or fornication. Rape, by the way, was a capital crime. You could be executed for raping a woman. And this was a different era. But by 65, those laws began to change. Now, along with that change in the law, there's something else going on in the change of technology. And the most determinative change in technology for family was the introduction of the birth control pill. Because then, women were being told that they could engage in sex outside of marriage and not have the consequence of a child. Before that, there was no such idea. 
And that was one of the fears for both young men and young women because it was assumed that if a man, a young man got a girl pregnant, then he had to take up his responsibility. Back then we even talked about shotgun weddings. When was the last time you heard about a shotgun wedding? And people don't bring shotguns to church anymore. <laughs> and so this was something that was, was radically different. And the fear of getting a girl pregnant was changing. Now it didn't change overnight because young girls could not get the pill. But by the 1980s and 90s, it was available in the schools and schools were dispensing them, as is still the case today. So that in public schools, the nurse can give you birth control if you're a young lady, but they can't give you an aspirin without your parents' permission. And it's, it's an amazing change, an amazing change. Because the birth control pill is dangerous compared to the aspirin. It's definitely coming, as a matter of fact, research that was suppressed is now being resurrected again and brought back to show that there is a link between breast cancer and the pill because you're increasing estrogen. And estrogen is a carcinogenic uh, product of the body. And so this is something that is, you know, coming back, but it was suppressed because the last thing they wanted to do was stop the pill from being available and put women and their reproductive rights at risk. But that mention of reproductive rights brings up another issue that's also gone on since the 1950s. And that is that the rights of adults have now taken precedence over the rights of children. I was changing channels recently, and the Titanic was on. And back then, they still were saying, women and children first in the lifeboats. Now, it's women and men leave the children behind. That is more the mentality of our society. Children are not considered the blessing they once were. And their rights are definitely put on a back burner compared to the rights of the adults. So, for instance, in no-fault divorce, responsibility for the children is put on a back burner. Most of the poverty in our culture today stems from the fact that men do not take care of the children they sire, whether in marriage followed by divorce or by premarital sex and a single mother where the man neglects the children, has no sense of responsibility. There are efforts that have been made by the federal government, which is not the federal government's bailiwick. It's not the concern of the federal government to enforce marriage laws. This is the state's governments that should be doing that, but they're not. I don't know if they don't have enough enforcement. I don't know that the federal government has enough enforcement to do this. But the federal government is trying to get this changed. But it is not changing. 
And in the African-American community, it's up to 70% of children are born to single mothers. And most of those, by far, are neglected by the men. In the Hispanic community, it's up to between 50 and 60%. But the, the trend is going higher. In the white community, it is somewhere around 25%. But climbing as well. All three communities are seeing a climb, though it's nearly at a saturation rate in the African-American community. It can't climb too much higher. In the Hispanic and Caucasian communities, it's on the increase. And this is not only in the United States. This is also in Europe. Another way in which the rights of adults is beginning to supersede the rights of children, is in the push for redefinitions of marriage. Marriage to include gay marriage, in which there are a variety of difficulties. For one thing, you know, the idea that a family is whatever you say it is, is something that puts children at risk. We've redefined family to include any adult who shows some sort of concern for the children because mothers and fathers don't necessarily do so. Sometimes they're incapacitated from caring because they're on drugs. That's another factor in single motherhood that cannot be underestimated. We can't, it's not just kids who are sexually excited. Don't think that that's just the thing. They, they just can't control themselves. That is baloney. With single mothers, one of the issues is that they are taken advantage of because they're on drugs and or alcohol. And they, they're at risk because they're on drugs and alcohol. They need money to take care of their habits. And some fool of a man promises to take care of them that night. But that night doesn't end that night if there's a pregnancy. Even if it ends in the tragedy of abortion, that night didn't end that night, but continues on to the abortion and the post-abortive syndromes. That night doesn't end if the child is born because the mother has to deal with that child, but oftentimes cannot. So grandparents and aunts have to step in because they're sober. Not always, but sometimes. This is the situation of our contemporary poor on many levels. Now, I'm prescinding from those who have recently lost their jobs. That's another situation. But in terms of what's been the trending of children born to single moms, their right to use drugs, now supported by a number of states, by the way, uh, with legalization of marijuana, and their right to use alcohol takes precedence over concern for their children. The health of children who are born addicted to crack cocaine or affected by alcohol poisoning or affected by other drugs that their mothers have ingested throughout the pregnancy period is horrendous. And I just got off the phone yesterday with a doctor friend of mine who, not yesterday, the day before, who is working in a neonate unit at a hospital where she deals with this constantly 
Can you imagine the 12-year-old mother of a child whose grandmother is 25 years old and whose great-grandmother is 42? This indicates a sequence of childbirth, children giving birth to children, and the sequence doesn't stop. And the, the mom and the grandmother and the great-grandmother are themselves incompetent to be able to stop their own daughters from making the same mistakes and get them to wait until marriage. A still further issue is that because adults feel that they have a right to sexual experimentation and any sexual expression they want, then the women and the men who want to wait until marriage before they have intercourse are put at a disadvantage. And it's not just the women who are put at a disadvantage. I hear as, from men as well as from women that there is pressure to engage in premarital sex during the dating process. Men are pressured by women and women are pressured by men because Throughout the culture, there is a strongly felt concern, if not a felt need, to have sexual expression, no matter whether you're married or not, no matter what the consequences are or not. And that puts the people who want to remain chaste until marriage at a marrying disadvantage. Other people don't want to date them because they're sticking the muds. People don't want to date them because they won't engage in sex and they become less desirable, even though they ought to be the more desirable partner in terms of trying to be responsible. But their sense of responsibility in regard to sexuality, giving birth to children, and all the other aspects that go along with marriage, that is not considered a marital advantage anymore. Willingness to engage in sexual activity is considered the advantage. And this is aided and abetted in major ways by all the media. It's hard to find media, including the news, that don't support this mentality. Where do you go except the church? It's the last place, and even there, it wavers. Some of you who may have grown up in the 70s can remember hearing from your religion teacher, well, if you love the guy or if you love the girl, it's okay because it's love that matters and all you're doing when you have sexual experience is loving them. So it's all right. I have heard that again and again from couples who got pregnant because the reality is young people are told to use contraceptives, but they don't. One of the things about being young is that you're also kind of dumb. <laughs> and you don't think with the head on your shoulders. You just don't. And so taking the pill is a discipline, not a healthy one, but it's a discipline for it to be effective. Using condoms is a discipline not a healthy one for the marital relations, but it's a discipline. And one of the things that 
does not characterize our young people is discipline. If they were disciplined, they wouldn't be pushing so hard to have sex in the first place. But they, they put the sexual experience as something more important than the educational experience. So college, for many of them, is not about acquiring skills, knowledge, and wisdom that I can use for the rest of my life. It's a way to get mom and dad to pay for me to run away from home and do whatever I want. And that is way too often the case. Now, unfortunately, I know I start to sound like my dad did. (laughs) Oh, when I was a kid, we had to work hard. You kids don't know what it's like. But I, I can't help it. I think I'm still, my dad had a point. And he grew up during the Depression. So compared to what he had to do, we did know how to work hard and, and struggle for existence. So he was right. We just said it was irrelevant. I think I'm correct in my analysis of some of what's going on. And that compared to the way it was when I grew up, where it was not an expectation that if you dated, you'd always went to bed. That was just not the expectation. If you dated, you went to the dance. That's what I remember. Now, it's been 42 years since my last date, I admit. (laughs) And who remembers August 20th, 1968? (laughs) Seven o'clock. You forget about those things. (laughs) But, you know, we we, we went out for, my last date was on a picnic, and we went for a picnic. You know, that was it. Down in a public park in Chicago. And so, you know, this was the kind of thing that, you know, it was a different expectation than it is today. And all of these things that I'm listing are among the artillery that is pouring out a barrage against marriage. And those of us who want marriage as a holy institution are in a fort that is under barrage. And that's the way that I see it. That it, it's, there is a siege mentality that I have. But I think it's because we're under siege. And people who stay locked up in a fort, in a barrage, are going to die. The only way tactically out of that is to go and take out the cannons. That's the way that you have to deal with this. You have to undo the barrage. And stop it. And this is one of the things that I want us to do. Now, to be able to undo a barrage, you have to be able to have a strength and weapons to be able to handle taking out this barrage. And it will not be easy. We have allowed so much to go on in the culture. And the culture has put itself at a very dangerous position. For the first time, the United States is now below replacement level. We'll be catching down to Europe. Europe is half of replacement for their population. Half of what it takes to replace their population. Italy being among the worst. Italy and Spain, two Catholic countries, are among the worst for reproduction. And in those countries, for instance, in Italy and Spain, especially in Italy, guys are allowed to live with their parents 
and fool around with whatever girl they want to fool around with without having to make the commitment to have kids. When American families go to Italy and they bring their children with them, the Italians are all over them. Why? Because they don't, it's a novelty. You don't see babies. And Italians love babies. They just don't want themselves to have them. They want somebody else to have them. And it's not only Western Europe. Israel is in the same position. I don't know how Israel is going to survive. I doubt that it will, quite frankly. Not because of terrorism. They can handle that. But their birth rate is 0.97 child per family. Not even one child per family. Stability is 2.21. To keep your population even, you have to have 2.21. They have 0.97. Palestinians have 5.4 children. It's over. It's over. Not only is it the not having children, for those who have children, delay it until their 30s and 40s. I was born when my mother was 19. The gap between her generation and mine was only just a little under 20 years because she turned 20 the next month. But there was a short gap between generations and that kept our population up. When women and men wait to marry late and have children in marriage, then they have children at 35 and 40. And the gap between generations widens. And you cannot make up for that. How can the population recover from it? It can't. We recovered quickly from the losses of World War II because we had children and they had lots of them and quickly. We may not be able to recover from this, what's now called the population winter. The problem is not going to be overpopulation in the world, but underpopulation. So while I was talking about high figures for illegitimacy, That doesn't mean that there's a high birth rate. It just means that among the children who are being born, they're born to single mothers at a higher rate. I think for for the whole country, it's almost 30%. Almost 30%. So we, we may not be able to recover from that either. So this is a very serious situation. One other thing I want to mention. If the bad news isn't bad enough. Among children who are born to single mothers, especially among the boy children, the boy children tend to become criminals at a much higher rate than children born to families. Because they don't have a father who can be there as a limit and a threat. By age 13, 14, boys become as big as their mothers. And they get the mentality that unless there's somebody bigger than they are, they can bully their mothers. And that's just a boy's mentality. They don't realize their own strength. 
They don't realize, you know, the, what it means to be a gentleman. Unless there's somebody who can enforce that. And that's where the roles of fathers come in, especially to, for boys to protect the women. And so we see a high level of criminal behavior among single women. There's an article that came out in the Atlantic Monthly back in April of 1993. And the title of the it was a cover article. If you want to go back to the internet, you can get it. The title was, Dan Quayle Was Right. Do you remember in the 1992 election how he was criticizing Murphy Brown for being becoming a single mother as a TV heroine on uh, a comedy, comedy series? And he was criticizing her for that because all these problems. The press and the Democrat Party, of course, but uh, politicians, but the press came up saying, how dare he say that a single mother can be just as good a parent as two parents are, and, and he just has no right to say this. How dare he, yada, 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 yada. Well, the men Atlantic Monthly had this article prepared two months after he said that for the summer of the 92 election cycle. But they didn't want to publish it because they didn't want to swing the election in favor of Dan Quayle. But it was a series of sociological studies, not opinion pieces, but sociological studies showing that boys, in particular, girls too, but boys in particular from single uh, parent homes drink earlier and often, more often, use drugs earlier and more often, engage in crime earlier and more often. Oftentimes, the mother is at work. She has to support her, her children. And unsupervised kids not only commit crimes, but they also go out and make more babies earlier and more often. That's just the reality. So all of this is part of that barrage. And what I'd like us to do is take a look at some of the things that we have as Christians as counter-barrage weapons. And how our mentality has to be alert. It's very seductive to go along with what the culture is purveying. It's very seductive to agree that marriage can be redefined. and Because it's easy. It's easy to go along with the culture. If that's the mood... Why go against it? What if this is the future of the country? How can we fight it? My contention would be, it may be the future of the country. And if it is, it'll destroy the nation. As it will destroy Europe. Europe is in the process of becoming a Muslim continent. And we will not like the idea of a series of Muslim governments in Berlin, Paris, and London, who have control of nuclear weapons. We will not like that one bit. That's not going to be to our advantage. And we may be left standing over against that. God willing, that won't happen. 
But I don't know how it won't happen. Frankly, I don't know how it won't happen. Unless those governments give us their nuclear weapons before Muslim-run governments can get a hold of them. That's just my frank assessment. So what do we have? First of all, we should do what Christ our Lord and what St. Paul did. We go back to the beginning. This is something that is good for every group and nation to do. Go back to our roots. We in this country need to go back to the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence. If we're going to preserve who we are, we need to understand what our law actually says. As Christians, we need to go back to our roots in Scripture. And one of the roots that I would have us go back to for understanding some of this is the text that deal with marriage at its beginning in Genesis. This is where St. Paul and Christ our Lord went, making reference back to this. Now, on one hand, I look at Genesis 2, when God made the man in the garden and planted the garden and put it for them, him to tend. And then he says, it is not good that the man shall be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. This is in Genesis 2, verse 18. I will make a helper fit for him. At which point, God, our Lord, creates the first practical joke. And he was, of course, wise enough to do it on a man. Men, men like practical jokes. That's why you can watch uh, the nanny on Lifetime, but the Three Stooges on Spike. Men are much more prone to laugh at the three stooges than women are. So what's the first practical joke? So out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the air and brought them for the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was his name. The man gave names to all cattle, to all the birds of the air, to every beast of the field. But for the man there was not found a helper fit for him. So you can imagine... The Lord God bringing a lion. Wouldn't you like a lion for a pet? Every boy wants a dog. How about a horse? Oh, I'd love a horse. I still want a horse. <laughs> How about elephants? Lions, tigers, and bears. You know, all the, all the different creatures out there. And he brings one creature after another. And it's not quite what the man is looking for. As much fun as the horse might be, uh, it's not the companion that is a fit helping mate for the man. So after this long, drawn-out, practical joke, the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And the word for deep sleep is a special word in Hebrew, tardema. The, the normal word for sleep is num. But that's not even related to tardema. It's not the same root at all. It's a deep sleep that the Lord God does and as far as I know, only the Lord God can put a tardema, deep sleep on somebody. And he does it when he's about to do something special. So it's uh, something that the Lord God is in charge of, and uh, you can't even give drugs for it. So this is the deep sleep. And 
While he slept, he took one of his ribs, closed up his place with flesh. And the rib which the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And the, and the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. And she, is, she shall be called woman, for she was taken out of her man. Therefore man leaves his father and his mother and cleaves to his wife, and they become uh, one flesh. And the man and the wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now, this is extraordinarily rich. First of all, the idea that the woman is made from the same stuff. This was not always the mentality of the ancient world. And the rabbis get at this some ways in their reflections on this text. They say that, you know, God took woman from the rib. He didn't take it from the foot that a man should walk all over his wife, nor from the hand that she should do all his work from him, but from his rib because it's closest to his heart. And the sense that there's to be this closeness between a man and a woman. This is something that is, is there. Yet she's also different from him. And this is one of the things that is really a terrific element that is oftentimes forgotten by the modern world. A lot of the modern world wants to see that women are equal and basically the same. Only culture changes the way men and women act. Now, we have to keep in mind, culture does have a lot of influence on the way men and women relate to each other. And there's no way around the fact that culture determines a lot of our behavior patterns. But it's not all culture. For instance, in cultures around the world, the average man will speak about 12,000 words a day. The average woman will speak about 26,000. By the time a guy gets home, he's probably had most of his fill. His wife is halfway there. And the reason you guys are laughing because you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> what do you mean talk? I don't want to talk. I just want to watch the game on the, on the TV. <laughs> and so it's, uh, and this is a very different sense. The difference between boy babies and girl babies shows up by age four months in this regard. Little girl babies will try to relate to you and connect. Little boy babies won't. Little girl babies will talk more from the beginning. Little boy babies make noises when they play. <laughs> Think of it. Little girls will talk for six, eight, ten bears, dolls, and other stuffed animals. And they'll carry on all the conversation without batting an eye. <laughs> Little boys are airplanes, trucks, bombs, guns. And go ahead, try to take guns away from little boys. There's always sticks. We will make guns. It's the way we are made. It's the way we are made. And we want to go. And little girls. Here's another difference. I just I love watching this. Little girls from very small times will twirl around. Little boys will come there and jump on the scene and say, get me if you can. You know, that there's a difference in the way that we approach the world. 
And it's a wonderful set of differences. It's also a set of differences that drives each other nuts. He never says anything. He just sort of sits there and watches TV. You know, she never shuts up. She doesn't stop talking. I mean, these differences are real. They are hardwired into the difference between men and women. So it's not just about the obvious sexual differences. It's differences in the way we think, the way we approach life. And here's one of the things that the, the feminists wanted to treat men and women like silly putty that you could reform into any shape you wanted them to be. All you have to do is cultural engineering. And that attempt at cultural engineering is going on in school. That's one of the reasons why a lot of boys are on Ritalin. Now, there might be some cases where they need it. But a lot of times, they're being boys. And they're not allowed to be little boys. You know, little boys are antsy in a different way than little girls are antsy. And about different things and four different things. Both of them are antsy in their ways. But they're concerned about different things. And, you know, the last thing that most boys are concerned about is their clothing, except insofar as it's, a, as it's a uniform to show that I'm cool. But little girls care about how they look. It's a different sense of image between the two. And this goes on through life. It goes on through life. That's why married men tend to be better dressed than single men. Because their wives pick out the clothes for them. Set them out. Make sure they match. I, on the other hand, have taken care of the problem. <laughs> All my clothing matches. <laughs> the point of all this is that there is a wonderful complementarity with these differences. The differences augment each other. And this is one of the reasons why single parenthood is not optimal that the differences between men and women teach our children of both genders. Both sexes learn that daddy plays with us differently than mommy does. Mommy will read to us. Daddy throws us up in the air and drives mommy crazy. <laughs> right? You know, this is, but that's the way, that's the way men play. That's the way we're supposed to play. This is what men do. We take risks of a different kind than women take. Women take risks. Marrying us is the wrong thing. But, <laughs> but, but women take risks. But it's a different order of risk. And taking a baby and throwing them up in the air is one of the things that we do. And, and kids go, and then laugh and giggle when you catch them. You know, because that's, that's exactly what, what men teach is the kind of risk-taking, whereas moms teach a security. And this complements because life has both. A need for absolute security that mommy loves you unconditionally. Daddy's going to toss you up in the air and probably catch you. <laughs> or until mommy says, it's all fun until somebody gets hurt. <laughs> Now, at the same time that these differences exist, what the text in Genesis is also making clear 
is that it's not a difference that means one is better than the other. Both complement each other. Both need each other. And the goal here of Genesis is to have a sense that we are dealing with equals and that marriage is going to be then something that is freely engaged in. One of the things that Pope John Paul brought out in his teachings is this line in verse 24. Therefore, a man leaves his father and mother and cleaves to his wife, and they become one flesh. By nature, a man belongs to his father and mother. And by nature, a woman belongs to her father and mother. But when it says that the man leaves his father and mother and cleaves to his wife, this is not something that is by nature but by choice. He makes a choice to cleave to his wife rather than follow the role of nature. Rather than follow this inclination to stick with what you know. He goes out and cleaves to his wife and takes that risk. And he recognizes that this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. And that the two cleave and become one flesh. So he recognizes the equality between him and the woman. And she needs to recognize the equality between herself and the man. It's a mutual recognition. And as such, they then become one flesh. Now that becoming one is primarily symbolized and experienced in the marital embrace. In the conjugal embrace, there is a becoming of one flesh. And what it leads to is that the man's sperm and the woman's egg literally become one flesh. So that they, when they join together, they become a distinct organ. Prior to that cleaving together, they were two separate cells. Two completely different cells. The ovum and the sperm are completely distinct from each other. They're not like each other. They don't look like each other. They don't act like each other. But once a, a, a sperm cell is able to break through the shell of the egg and fertilize that egg, then it becomes one new organism. And that, in another sense, doesn't just symbolize, but gives a reality of them becoming one flesh. And there's a great thing, too. I, I love Alice von Hildebrand, who one time said that, you, I feel sorry for you men, because you don't have the privilege we do. Because it's not right away during the act of, of marriage that the sperm fertilizes the cell. It's sometime afterward, because it takes a while for the sperm to get to the, to the egg. And in that time, usually the woman is alone with God. And God does something in her womb that he does nowhere else in the world. If you know the uh, physics doctrine of the conservation of energy, that 
no new matter is being created. All that happens is that matter changes form. So a piece of wood is turned into carbon by fire. It doesn't disappear. It just is changed into another form and flies away. But the tree doesn't disappear. It just changes into another chemical than what it was when it was still a tree. And this is true with all matter. Sunshine becomes leaves and so on. So all matter is simply changed and transformed. Nothing new is created. There's no new matter. All the matter has been created and it's one entity that exists. Whereas in the womb of a woman, when that sperm and that egg become one flesh in her womb, then God does create. He creates a soul inside that woman. And in that sense, this is the last place where God does creating, where he makes a human soul that is an eternal being. This is absolutely astounding. And this is a great privilege that women have. With privilege goes a lot of responsibilities. But it's a great privilege that women have, and we men observe. But again, our ability to observe this, and this is a process we watch from afar. And we're amazed by it, and we're more amazed, you know, when the birth actually happens. You know, it's because we don't feel the baby kicking from inside of us. We can put our hands on a mother's tummy and, and feel the kicks coming out, but it's not the same as a woman feels where the baby's kicking inside of her. And all the other growth and all the other changes that go, some of which are not so pleasant, but you know that's part of the, the process of adapting to having another body inside one's own body. But that distance is also something that is part of the complementariness because the man loves the child in a slight way, as an outsider, the mother loves the child from the inside. The man loves the child and says, you know, I accept this child. Like when my best friend wife had their first child, you know, he picked up the baby and the nurse took it from him and handed it to the mom. And she said, honey, you just done lost your man. You know, because it was a little girl and she totally stole his heart. But this is the kind of thing that a man, you know, shows a kind of love from, you know, again, like we have a sense. Well, mom's got to love me. You know, she may say she wants to kill me, but she really loves me anyway. (laughs) Whereas dad comes from the outside and gives that outside acceptance of the child. And that complements what the mother does. And it's this back and forth of the two different ways in which we give and add to each other that is so key to marriage. And it's something that is in the very nature of who we are. This is not something that is just cultural. Culture can affect it. Culture can sometimes make it make bad elements in us worse or can help to purify the good elements. That latter is the goal of a Christian culture. A Christian culture wants to take these elements that are in human nature 
of the way men and women were made for each other as equals who are different and complementary and take those natural gifts and accentuate the high points and develop those. That is the goal of a Christian culture. And that is the goal of the Catholic Church. And that needs to be our goal. That was Father Mitch Pacwa with Crisis in the Family. For more talks, interviews and shows, visit cradio.org.au.